All right. Here we go. Beneath the wild brakes in its glacial white cap sleeps a giant. Cotopaxi, Ecuador's most active volcano, rests among the Andes Mountains, and it's held sacred by the indigenous communities. Davis Smith grew up here. Well, to be fair, Davis grew up in a number of Central and South American countries. You see, Davis and his family were a bit less traditional than most. You know, I had a, a pretty unique childhood in that my, my dad was an adventurer and we often spent time exploring the world. And, you know, we'd make our own raft and float the Amazon River fishing for piranha or we'd go, you know, survive on little uninhabited islands, made our own spears and we'd spear fish wow. with these spears and eat coconuts and stuff. You know, your everyday Swiss family Robinson type. But growing up in these countries also meant coming to an early realization something many people never come face-to-face with in their entire lives. Besides just this, this love for the outdoors, I really developed a deep sense of empathy for others. I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories as a little child was seeing children my age that were completely naked on the sides of the street. And so as a four-year-old, I, I, I was shocked. I, I didn't understand why my life was so different from theirs. And I, I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't special, I wasn't smarter or more deserving or harder working. I was just really lucky. And I came from a, a very middle-class family. Didn't, we didn't have a ton of wealth, but we had more opportunities than any of these other people would ever have. And so developed a love for these beautiful people and cultures and language. Davis would eventually found Cotopaxi, the outdoor clothing and gear company with a mission to help alleviate poverty. But I'm getting ahead of myself because the trail that led Davis to Cotopaxi really shaped every aspect of the company. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Gross Show. Every brand has a story. And Davis's starts in Peru with a small boy named Edgar. I was really anxious to find an opportunity when I was in college to get back to Latin America and to find a way to help. I knew from the time I was a child, I knew that I had a responsibility to go back and, and help this, this region of the world that I loved. And a professor mentioned this opportunity to do an internship down in Peru. It was like an unpaid internship working with a nonprofit. I was lucky enough to get the internship and I went down to Peru. It was just magical. I, I got to Cusco, this, this, it's the longest continuously inhabited city in the, in the Americas. And yeah. um, it just ruins everywhere, this perfectly blue sky um, and just beautiful people. And I, you know, it was, it was like being home. And I, I, the first thing I did is I, I went and bought a meal. And instead of sitting in the restaurant, I, I wanted to sit in this main plaza in the center of the city. This was like the heart of the Incan empire. Yeah. And I, I was you know, surrounded by these beautiful buildings and this fountain. And I'm just sitting on a bench eating. And you know, all these little kids uh, started running up to me and uh, trying to sell me things. And you know, having grown up in Latin America, I immediately connected with these little kids and yeah. you know, joked around with them. And um, after a while, they all ran off, except for one little boy, a little nine-year-old boy. His name was Edgar. Hmm. He was just a sweet little, sweet little kid, and he kept insisting to shine my shoes. And uh, it took me a few minutes to convince him it's not possible to shine tennis shoes. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, he just kept sitting there, and I realized after a while, you know, maybe he's staying here watching me eat because he's hungry. So I offered him 
um, the rest of my lunch. And I just never seen anybody eat like that. It was clear that he was, he was very hungry and he ate this food. And, um, that night as I was eating dinner, I decided I was going to go try to find him again. Um, he was always easy to spot. He had a a hole in the butt of his, of his pants, but with no underwear (laughs) on. So you could always spot him from a distance. And, um, I came and found him and he was so shocked that I'd come back to look for him. And I gave him this food and he ran back and started sharing it with all of his little friends. And, um, it really touched me and this became my daily ritual. It was every day was the highlight of my day was looking for Edgar. Go find Edgar. Yeah. You know, that little boy really, it's interesting that you have these little life experiences and you don't know, you know, what, what you'll remember, but like this experience really shaped me. And my last night in Cusco, I was walking back to my place and I actually stumbled upon two little boys sleeping on the sidewalk. It was close to midnight. It was really cold outside. And one of them was Edgar. And I woke him up and, and I asked him why he wasn't at home, why he was sleeping on the street. And someone had stolen his shoe shiny kit. And so he was too afraid to go home because uh, he was responsible for helping feed his family. And wow. um, I gave him the little cash I had. And um, that night I could just hardly sleep. I was just so worried about this little kid and just thinking yeah. about this life that he lived that just seemed so unfair. Um, the next morning I got on a bus to leave Cusco for the last time. We went around the main plaza uh, to let some people on and off this bus. And as I looked out the window, I saw Edgar and he saw me and I had just enough time where I slid open the window of this bus and he ran next to it, waving goodbye to me. And he had this big bag of candy that he bought with the money I gave him that he was now selling in the streets. And um, it was just, uh, you know, on that bus, I, I made a commitment um, as we drove away that I was going to use my life to be of use to others. And that's where I found true happiness. And that's where I knew yeah. I have real purpose. And so I've thought of Edgar every day since 2001, since that experience as, as an intern. And um, it's really driven me uh, every single day thinking about him. So, Do you know what's happened to him? Is he out there living his life somewhere? Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's something that I've wondered. Um, Every day, I, I, you know, I, I've for years just always wondering, yeah. like, what ever happened to Edgar? Did he have a chance to go to school? Um, you know, now that he's an adult, was, you know, was he able to find a career or something that he was passionate about or that he enjoyed doing? And does he think back to you at all? I mean, yeah, it is so funny how these these people can kind of walk into your life and and make just this imprint that stays with you your whole life, and you always have to ask the question of, you Do know, they even remember who did, I? Yeah, yeah did, did, did it, it mean the same thing? And <laughs> Uh, it could have. It could have been just as pivotal that that somebody had had picked him out of a crowd and and yeah. uh, paid attention to the fact that he was hungry or that he was wanting and uh, offered him yeah. something. No, it's a, it's a great question, and you know the the cool thing is I actually know the answer. About two two or three years ago, I decided I wanted to go back to Peru. I'd never been back since two thousand one. I wanted to, I wanted to find Edgar and I knew it was like really an impossible task. I only knew his yeah. first name. I knew he was nine years old. I knew he shined shoes. That's really it. But I, I got into Cusco. I dropped my bags in my hotel and I went straight to the plaza and I had, a, I have one picture of him sitting on his shoe shiny kit. And then I had like a, a little 11 second video of him running next to this bus, waving goodbye to me. And uh, armed with that, I went into the main plaza and I just started talking to people. And um, pretty soon there was a big group, you know, about 60 people that probably gathered around uh, me and they were all kind of wondering, you know, why is this this tall, bald gringo speaking (laughs) Spanish? You know, so they all gathered around and pretty soon someone in the back said, 
I know who that is. That's my best friend. Like we grew up in the streets together, shiny shoes and selling things. And we both sell paintings in the streets now. And um, he started saying his phone number out loud. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I was like, no way. Like this is just, I'd been there like 15 minutes, maybe. Did and you so, get goosebumps? Yes. I have goosebumps I mean, right now. Yes. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and we walked over to a payphone. I put some, some change into the phone. He dialed the number and I grabbed the phone and someone answered and I said, I'm looking for Edgar. And he said, this is Edgar. And I was just like, I, I, I couldn't even believe it. And I just said, there's no way you're gonna remember who I am, but you might remember when you were nine years old at night when someone had stolen your shoe shiny kit. And it was silent for a second. And he goes, are you the person that gave me the money to help me buy a new kit? And it was just the most emotional moment. And yeah. um, that was in the evening, uh, it was dark already. We met up the next morning on the cathedral steps, which is the last place I'd seen him running next to this bus. And we spent the whole day together embracing and, um, he took. He wanted to take me to his home. He was so proud. He was kept telling me all about it, how he'd built it. And as we went up into the hills on this little bus and then walked up the side of this mountain to go to his little house, he told me his life story. And his parents had both passed away a couple of years after I met him. His mom died giving birth uh, to his little brother and his wow. dad died of, uh, of alcohol abuse a, a year or two later. And so he's been raising his younger two siblings. And um, we got to this house and it was just a house made of mud. Uh, a hole in the ground for a toilet. And a piece of me was so discouraged seeing how he was living. But another part of me was just bursting with pride because he was so proud of it. And so right. I, you know, we talked about what his dreams were and he talked about dream, you know, his dream of he wanted to be a tour guide at some point. And so I've helped him go through a program, a three-year program where he's learning to be a tour guide. He graduates this year and uh, he's going to be the best tour guide in Cusco. Yeah. He's, he's learned English from working with tourists every single day. Yeah. Um, he uh, he's, you know, knows the city of Cusco better than anyone. He grew up on those streets. And so I'm just so proud of him. And um, you know, we're, on, we're in touch frequently, almost every day. And he's like one of the most active Facebook users on the planet. So uh, <laughs> it all comes back to Facebook. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, I'm grateful to have him in my life. He's made a real impact for me. Yeah. So how do you, you know, when you're giving advice to other people who want to make a difference in the world, whether it's a singular action like giving someone money after they've had their, their kit stolen or something more at the macro level, where do you tell people to begin? It's a good question because it can be overwhelming, right? I mean, people in general, they want to make a difference. They want to help people, but sometimes you just don't even know where to start. And so I think the key is to just start. It's just to do that, to find something, find somebody you know, I know right in front of our office here, we have a, a man that's homeless and his name's Dave. He's just an amazing guy, he's super bright. And, but it's like every day, can I have an opportunity to have an interaction with him and to yeah. hopefully make his day just a little bit brighter. And if everyone just kind of looked for that one person, you know, yeah. the question is like, who, who is your Edgar? Who is that, that one person that every single day can remind you to look beyond yourself? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be in Peru. It doesn't have to be, you know, some refu a refugee in the Middle East. It can be just someone in your local community that maybe, you know, a widow, it's, it's a neighbor that just needs a little bit of a conversation here and there and someone that kind of looks after. I mean, it's just those kind of moments really just, they lift you. They, may, yeah. they just give you so much joy. And, um, and I think once you start experiencing that, it, it just makes you want more. It's really addictive and you just want yeah. to find more ways to, to have impact. Yeah. Now, Davis, if I had run into you when you were 22 years old after this internship, after the childhood that you had, I would have put money on the fact that you would have headed into a nonprofit. 
Um, <laughs> but you decided to start a business. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that decision and how you're leveraging that business to make a difference in the world. Yeah. So, you know, I would have said the same thing if you would have asked me when I was 22. Um, I had no idea I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was in Peru and had that experience with Edgar. It was actually a, a mentor of mine that kind of put me on this path. I, when I was in college, I'd, I'd read a newspaper article about a man who had um, been an entrepreneur and had sold his business and he and his wife moved to the Philippines and started pulling people out of poverty through entrepreneurship, teaching them how to start their own businesses. Mm -hmm. I cut out the article, I carried it around university for like three and a half years. I saw it every single day, it was in the front, uh, like a clear face binder that I had. Wow. So I saw it, you know, 15, 20 times a day. And every day it was there to remind me of what really mattered, which was to find out, to discover what I was good at so that I could use those skills to help others. And fast forward until my end of the end of my time at, in college, I was on campus for a social impact conference on a weekend. And I'm walking down the hallway in between some sessions. And I see the man from this article, his name's Steve Gibson. He was getting into an elevator and I'm just like, awestruck. I mean, it's like total, uh, you know, I can't believe this is my idol. You know, I'm seeing him in person. So yeah. I ran down the hallway. I stuck my arm in the elevator, jumped inside and he was stuck. He had to talk to me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this guy's a multimillionaire. He's changed thousands of people's lives. I'm a nobody. And he's acting so flattered that I'd recognize him and that I knew who he was. And he asked me if I'd be interested in meeting with him in a couple of weeks. I, of course, took him up on the offer. And I spent the next couple of weeks preparing uh, a pitch where I was gonna convince him to let me go work for him. And I wanted him to expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America where I'd grown up. Yeah. And uh, I gave him this whole pitch. The whole time he's smiling and nodding and I'm thinking, I'm nailing this. Like he's, my idol is gonna hire me. This is such a dream. And at the end he goes, Davis, I love how passionate you are about finding a way to do good, but you don't wanna work for me. He's like, what I see in you is that you would be a great entrepreneur you should go start your own business. And then 10 or 20 years down the road, you'll be able to go make your own impact. You'll go find your own way. And um, I know Steve Gibson well. And yeah. what I've learned is that Steve tells everyone they'd be a great entrepreneur. So <laughs> I really wasn't special, but it, at, the, at the moment it felt like my idol had seen something in me that I hadn't even seen in myself. And it gave me the confidence to, to go start my first business. And so I built over the next 10 years two different businesses and was really lucky. Uh, ended up selling them and decided... I was ready to focus on building something meaningful. I was living in Brazil with my last business and mm -hmm. um, decided I wanted to build a brand that could inspire people and move people to do good with me. And I felt I could make a bigger impact if I could do that than if I just started a nonprofit or something. Um, we make outdoor gear, but everything is tied back to causes. And we, we manufacture, one of the places I lived in Bolivia, there's a community that makes about $200 a year per capita. And we're, we've gone to these communities, we're buying llama wool from them, we're making these amazing products. Uh, yeah. I'm wearing a pair of socks right now that are made of llama wool. And we make all these great products, but we find ways to have impact through our supply chain. Um, we use our profits to support poverty alleviation. Um, if you order from our website, you get a handwritten thank you card that's written by a refugee that's been resettled oh, wow. here. Yeah, it's their very first job. So they write the thank you cards in their native language. And we teach them, we created a job club with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. And these refugees, they, we teach them how to do a job interview, how to create a resume. Um, you know, our whole team kind of volunteers and teaches and it's, uh, it's really special, but we've really kind of just, we've looked for ways to embed this mission into every aspect of the brand and the business. More from Davis after this quick break. Interested in picking the minds of self-made entrepreneurs? Then check out the Growth Everywhere podcast, hosted by Eric Sue. 
Eric interviews entrepreneurs who took an idea from a garage or a bakery in the case of Larry Kim and turned it into a multi-million dollar business. Some of our favorites, hooked author Nir Ayal on why products become so addictive, the league founder Amanda Bradford on creating an exclusive dating app for successful professionals, and FabFitFun co-founder Michael Brukim on why he went into the subscription lifestyle business. Find growth everywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to the show. What's the role of storytelling for you uh, when it comes to marketing for your own brand and for outdoor brands in general? I, I didn't come from the outdoor industry, but one thing I believed when I was starting this brand was that there was an opportunity to build a brand differently. I felt, I felt like all the outdoor brands were focused on features, on technical features. It was like they're trying to yeah. sell their product to, to consumers by saying, hey, we make a better product. That just didn't speak to me. I, I just felt like, you know, everyone makes great product. That's expected. Right. But what... What people are, want is they want a story. They want to understand who made the product. I mean, we're, think of the, the clothes we're wearing today, the shoes or the pants or the shirt. That just didn't come out of a machine. Like a human actually made that for you. But why don't we know their stories? You know, who, who, where do they live? Like they have, they have dreams. They have children that they have dreams for. And so I, I just felt there was an opportunity to, to do something that no one had done. And I wanted to build stories around the brand. I wanted to I wanted to create experiences where people weren't just buying a product, but they could go live and touch the brand. We weren't just a backpack company or jacket company. We're a company that represented values. And the day that we launched, we, uh, we also ran an event. Uh, we started an event called the Questival, and it's this 24-hour adventure race. And um, people formed teams. They could form a team of up to six people. Everyone got one of our backpacks. And we had a few thousand people show up at this first event Wow, that um, yeah, amazing. it was crazy. And they, you know, everyone's out spending this 24 hours out adventuring, hiking, biking, um, camping, uh, giving service in the community, doing kind of quirky challenges around their city. I mean, it was just an amazing experience. We had 30,000 social media posts the day of our launch of people wearing our backpacks out in the outdoors, exploring wow. the world, giving service. So it was just such an amazing way for people to go experience what Cotopaxi stood for and represented. And um, we now do those events all over the country. Uh, pretty much every weekend, there's some questival happening somewhere around the U.S. I also hear that there were llamas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were there llamas? There were the llamas. Uh, you know, so our logo has a llama in it. And uh, that was inspired by these years that I lived in the Andes. And, you know, when we were brainstorming, like, how do we get people to even know about this questival, this, this race? It was kind of tricky because no one even knew who Cotopaxi was. We hadn't sold anything yet. But I went on Craigslist and I bought two llamas and we started bringing these llamas around college campuses. And Wait, just, just for a moment. <laughs> I had no idea you could buy llamas on Craigslist. There are llamas on Craigslist. <laughs> so we bought these two llamas. We named one Kodo and one Poxy. And nice. uh, they were just, they're the coolest little guys. They, they basically uh, became our little mascots and we took them on to college campuses and I just thought, you know, it's a matter of time, you know, just minutes probably before campus police run up and they, they uh, <laughs> arrest me or arrest the llamas or something. And, you know, we hadn't asked for permission to be there. We just showed up and yeah. pretty soon we had hundreds and hundreds of people gathered around us, taking selfies with these llamas, asking why the llamas were on campus. And then we'd give them a flyer and tell them, hey, you know, this is, they're here because the Questival's coming, you know, and pretty soon like the student newspaper came out and wrote a story about these llamas on campus and about the Questival that was coming up and, um, about four hours in, uh, the campus police rolled up in a golf cart and one of them <laughs> walked right up to me and I was like, here we go. You know, this is it. 
And he said, sir, uh, can I take a selfie with your llama? And I was just like, what? Yes, yeah. yes, you can. So, yeah, so then that's when I, I realized, you know, if you, if you have llamas with you, uh, you can basically break any law and you won't get in trouble, so. So, okay, so the llama playbook and these quests, those aren't exactly in your Marketing 101 textbook. Do you do classic marketing? Do you run TV or other ads? You know, we don't do TV, but we, um, we do do a lot of digital marketing. We're a, we're a digitally native vertical brand, so a brand that's been born online. A lot of our brand is built through word of mouth. It's one of the advantages of having a strong social mission is that people, they share values with you and they want to talk yeah. about it. And, and the product that we have is very unique. It's very colorful. You know, we have these bags um, that are called the Del Dia bags, and they're, they're, every bag is one of a kind. The sewers in our factory in the Philippines, they get choice for the first time, they get choice in what they're sewing. And we told them, you can use any materials, any colors you want, just use the remnants, the leftover material from the manufacturing process from all these other brands that use the same factory. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only rule is to make no bag alike. And so when you see one of our products, you know. I mean, it's, it's, they're very unique and that creates a lot of buzz. And of course, we use these offline experiences to, to create buzz around the brand. And Do you find it funny at all that an outdoor brand like yourself is finding like the digital first world as a greatest source of marketing? Yeah, it is kind of ironic, isn't it? Um, what I felt didn't exist in the outdoor industry was a brand built around millennials. I mean, so many of the other great brands in the outdoor industry were built 40, 50, 70, 80 years ago. I mean, there, there are right. grandparents' brands or our parents' brands. And when you talk to these young millennials, like I just felt there was no brand that really represented their values. A lot of the, the great brands are built around environmental causes, which are great. Obviously, all, all of us care about the environment, but that's table stakes now. I mean, everyone, yeah. you have to do things right. You have to manufacture things in the right way. But for me, it was like, I wanted to build around a brand around people. And that's what yeah. didn't really exist. And I felt like millennials, they share that same passion of exploring the world and connecting with different people and cultures. And for us, it wasn't about sponsoring an athlete that's jumping out of a helicopter with an avalanche, kind of chasing behind them as they ski down <laughs> sure. this mountain. It was about, why don't we go sponsor some young kids that are spending a, a gap year traveling the world and, and visiting communities and giving service? Like, that's what our brand represents. Uh, and that yeah. to me felt a lot more aspirational and achievable than, you know, I just, I'm never gonna be able to jump out of a helicopter and, and ski down that mountain. That's just not something I, I could do. And I think most people can't do that, but, yeah. but everyone could, could go see the world. Everyone can find a way to go give service in their community. And so that's what I really wanted to, to build the brand around. What's the balance for you between profit and philanthropy? We can't do good unless the business is profitable. I mean, it's that yeah. simple. The business has to work. But that's the beauty of, of this new model, these, these benefit corporations. Like this is the future of capitalism. Capitalism has done an amazing job of, of lifting you know, the, the world out of poverty. Over the last, since I graduated from high school, over a billion people have li- been lifted out of extreme poverty. Um, in, in 1820, you know, 200 years ago, 94% of the planet lived in poverty. It's just, and now it's less than 10%. It's remarkable. That said, capitalism is destructive and it's, it's imperfect and it's, it's destructive to our environment. It it leaves people behind. Um, There's, there's problems with it, but what we've seen is that that capitalism can can evolve. Um, You know, my grandparents, you know, when they were kids at that age, like children worked in factories. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, You know, so capitalism has evolved. It's gotten better. And there's more we can do. There's more we need to do. We need, we need businesses to hold themselves more accountable. We need customers to hold businesses more accountable. And, uh, and I think, frankly, we need businesses to hold customers more accountable. So 
this movement that we're making towards, you know, where businesses are thinking beyond just their bottom line and beyond maximizing shareholder value. That's where this world needs to go. And um, yeah, but yeah, these things are so closely tied together. You know, you can't have really one without the other. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear you call it the future of capitalism. I think that really hits. Well, Davis, it's an incredible story, and I really thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Absolutely, this is my pleasure. Thank you for thank you for doing this, and uh, I hope people in, enjoy hearing the story. Today's episode was produced by Matthew Brown and featured music from Synchronize. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, do me a favor. See the person next to you. Yeah, that one. Lean on over, don't lurch, and tell them about our podcast. Look at that. Made a new friend and helped support the show you know and love. I think the only way to end this is with the words of the poet laureate of the High Sierras himself, John Muir. The mountains are calling and I must go.